welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. We're going to be coming from John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. We're going to read on three. One, two, three. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will be produced more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, glorified by this that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me I have also loved you remain in my word you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remained in his love I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete Thus the reading of the word. We have a heavy text this morning, y'all. So uh, let's pray. Gracious God and Father, um, Sovereign One, Lord, I come before you. Um, I am unworthy of being called your servant. Um, I am a broken vessel, a very crooked branch, which you can do great things and draw straight lines with a branch that's crooked. Lord, I pray that you will fill me up. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase. I hide behind your cross. Fill me with your spirit. Give me wisdom. Give me courage and boldness to speak your word to your people. May the hearts of your people be open to hear what thus saith the Lord. May their hearts respond in humility and in obedience. May their hearts be torn and that they will cry out to you either what must I do to be saved or that I surrender to you. Be with us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. You all know that we've been going through the Hebrew series by Pastor uh, Dr. Eric Mason, um, Jesus is better. Right, y'all was a little bit late on that. A little bit late, a little bit late. However, with us going through that series, being anchored, this particular series that we're doing, we're taking a pause 
and we wanted to do something for this summer. Um, being recentered. We were talking about what it looks like when we drift, when our hearts and our souls are not anchored in the truths of Scripture, when we're not anchored in Jesus. It's very easy for us to go astray and to go adrift. And in some instances, to apostate, to abandon the faith, right? We're going to talk about all of that. But today we want to really, dis really want to dive into the heart, the nitty-gritty of discipleship. What it means to be recentered. How and what we must do to realign our lives, ourselves with Jesus so that we can be centered. Real quick, um, the necessity of abiding. The title for today's sermon is Abiding in Jesus is Non-Negotiable. Abiding in Christ is non-negotiable. It's not up for debate. It's not up for debate. Abiding is essential for all of us in every aspect of our lives. I think of electricity. When you plug in electricity... You have direct current. You have, di you have DC, direct current, and you have AC, alternating current. When you plug in your appliance, your appliances, they have an unlimited source of power. But the minute it's unplugged or it's not abiding, let's say your refrigerator or your deep freezer that has meats, produce, and we all know that meats depend on what your taste buds is, whether it be lamb, goat, oxtail, steak. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? Beef, ground beef, lean beef, bison. You know what I'm saying? That stuff is expensive. I remember my wife and I, some years ago, we had hired someone to do work for us in our home. Long story short, they did us dirty. That's the summation, they did us dirty. Right? I was in the basement. My wife needed something from a com for a computer, and I happened to look around, and I saw that the, the, the deep freezer was unplugged. Now, we had just bought, like, at least $500 worth of, like, we, we, we shared, we, we went and bought a cow with a family. Now, we had prime ribs, steak, chops, ground beef. Oxtails, chuck, you name it, we had it. I happened to look off in the distance and I'm looking and I'm like, I'm looking for the, the plug and I'm not seeing it and it just hit me. Oh my gosh. Now, this was a hot summer. <laughs> a hot scorching summer and the freezer had been unplugged for at least five weeks. In the basement. I don't know why, but something told me, let me just go see what's, <laughs> what the inside of this, the, almost put me on my back. <laughs> I never opened it again. I, I, I tossed the whole thing. <laughs> Taped it up, bagged it up, chucked the whole thing. When we're not connected to the vine, when we're not connected to Jesus, what happens to the interior components of your soul? When you're not, when you don't have direct connection to the Messiah, 
What do, what do you smell like? Do you begin to decay like stink flesh when it rots? Your character? Your love towards people? Or you know, the lack thereof? Your faithfulness to, to the church? Your faithfulness, your commitments to Jesus and or the lack thereof? What do your life look like? Where are you and I not abiding? The gospel, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend a considerable amount of time talking about Jesus and his identity. But John's gospel is very unique and very distinct because it focuses on Jesus' deity. The fact that he was God incarnate in the flesh, right? So which leads us to our particular passage of scripture in John 15, right? We're going to dive right in. 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. Pause. Jesus describes himself as the vine. All throughout the Gospels, you have Jesus' I am statements. The idea that Jesus says, I am the vine, it doesn't originate here, nor does it necessarily originate in the beginning of John, but it originates way back in the Old Testament, back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses, when God appeared, made a theophany to Moses, and God commissioned him, and God called him from the mountain of Mount Sinai, and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses approached him and told him to take his feet, take, not his feet, take his shoes off because the ground that he was standing on was holy. Right? Moses was tending his father's flock and when he saw the bush, he responded. There was a discourse that exchanged between, between Yahweh and Moses. And Moses asked, well, who is it, should I say, that sent me? God's response was, I am that I am. Tell him that I am that I am. Bad English. God can speak like that if he wants. But it's proper. God is never I was. He always I am in the present. He always is. And he said he will be whatever it is that the people need him to be. Right? So here you see Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah, low-key, right? The opening statement of John starts off with this prolific life-giving words and identity claims of Christ. It is here that you see Jesus according to the, arch, the, the overarching narrative of John's gospel that Jesus crescendos his I am statements, right? You see some of that on display throughout the gospel of John. Right. It is here that we see not just who Jesus is, but the implications of that title as the true vine, not a true vine, the true vine. It's a definitive article. The word the meaning singular, meaning only. He's the onlyest one. There's no other. And anything else outside of that is counterfeit and is bootleg. To help paint the picture, in the Old Testament, the vine or the vineyard was sacred. 
it was considered to be sacred because oftentimes it was used as a reference or as a symbol to describe the people of Israel, right? The covenant community or the people of God. They were the ones that were planted by him and nurtured and tended to him. Well, no, he tended to them with the expectation of bearing fruit and receiving a cluster of grapes or produce. You should see some of these uh, posted up. Psalm 80, uh, verse 8 through 16. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Hosea chapter 1, no, Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. And Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. Typically, when you look at these passages in the Old Testament, it reveals how God had to constantly reprimand, correct, rebuke, put on blast, or bring judgment upon his people because of their constant, their constant infidelity, their uncommitment, and their lack of devotion and lack of abiding in him. Right? In the New Testament, you, in the New Testament, you saw the continued theme of the vine, right? Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus would speak to the people via parables, and he would use these as a teaching device or a tool to help convey greater spiritual meaning, right? They're littered all throughout the, all throughout the Gospels. Matthew 21, verse 18 to 22, y'all should have them. I want to encourage you, strongly encourage you, advise you. Don't take my word for it. Go through the text and search the scriptures and see if what I'm telling you is accurate. That's your homework. <laughs> it is here where we arrive in John chapter 15, verse 1. Here Jesus describes himself as the vine. Here there's a contrast between where God's covenant people failed, but Jesus was able to bear, produce, and fulfill the role of Messiah the fruit that Israel was supposed to produce, Jesus produced. And because Jesus produced, he has the right to claim that he is the true vine. Right? He is the new Israel. He is now the means of which salvation is obtained. No longer Israel because before Christ, you pretty much had to become a proselyte or a Gentile who wasn't a part of the Jewish commonwealth to actually become a member or a part of his, to be a part of Israel so you can worship Yahweh. God wanted to bring salvation to the globe through Israel, right? But now that the Messiah has arrived, he's done something better. Again, the idea that Jesus is better. Right. He's better. He is the access to which we become a part of the new messianic community, right? Made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Made up of both Jews and Gentiles. This is done not by, this is done not by following the sacrificial system. This is not done by keeping the religious laws, the feast days, or anything of that nature. This is done by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone. And believing on the words and the claims that Jesus made himself. There was a great paradigm shift that had taken place. Therefore, because Jesus is the, the true vine, 
He is the direct power source of our strength. Jesus is the direct power source of our energy. The very essence of life and what it means to be alive, spiritually speaking. You can be alive and still not have life coursing through your veins. There's a difference. Life and being alive are two different things. You'll be, you'll, you'll be amazed to find out how many people that are alive are spiritually dead. Have no connectivity to the God of the universe. No connectivity to Yahweh or the vine. Jesus is everything that we need in order to be vibrant, to persevere, to endure, to bear up under hardship and suffering, and most importantly, atonement of sin and to bear up uh, atonement of sin and having eternal life. All this to say that he is the one who sustains you, right? Now, Yahweh, the B portion of verse 1, my father is the gardener. God the father is described as the gardener. He is the sovereign one who rules over all of creation. He's the one who planted the vineyard to begin with and is the one who administers care to the vineyard. As the one who planted the garden, there is an expectation. God is the one who has divine expectation and anticipation that he's looking forward to receive a bountiful harvest for something that he has planted. That's a healthy expectation for him to have. Now, the role of the father as the gardener is mandatory and very important and is twofold. One, first, he prunes. The father prunes. Second, he cuts off and he removes. Pruning. Pruning is mandatory. Pruning is very painful. Pruning means that you need to get cut. When branches or vines that are, when vines are planted and they're producing fruit, there are some branches on the vine that may be diseased with mold or fungus, and it can prevent nutrients flowing to the other aspects of the vine and or to other branches. Therefore, it would impede the development and nourishment of the clusters of grapes that are on the vine. So therefore, surgery need to take place, right? Then there are times when there are some branches that are just withered and shriveled up. They're attached to the vine, but there's no life. It seems like it's dying. And if that particular branch remains, it's going to prevent further nutrients to grow to the rest of the vine. So God has to cut it and throw it away. For those of us who are followers of Christ... There are times when God will have to systematically and intentionally prune and cut you and die. In places that we don't want, that we don't like, that we don't care for, but he will do it because he sees the benefit and how, how much bountiful of a harvest that you and I can bring, right? To remove means to take away, to pick up, to destroy, with the implication of removal and doing away with. Pruning, pruning means to cleanse. It's to cleanse, to cut off, or to trim, to purge, right? In the winter, the vine dresser, he cuts off the dry and withered branches with 
which may involve pruning the vines to an extent that only the stalks remain, so that by the springtime, when he removes the rank and useless growth of the branches and it begins to bud and blossom, it would flourish abundantly, right? Verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will bear more fruit. Very briefly, when we look at the text, we need to understand that there is a delineate distinction between the branches and the vine. There's a difference. We already established who the vine is. Jesus is the vine. That's where our nutrition and our value comes from. The branch, the branch are those who are in alignment or supposed to be following Christ, right? The branch is not likened that of a tree, though there are sometimes it can be, but in this context, it's connected to the vine. The branch is connected to the vine. The branch points to those who are true followers, authentic disciples, not converts. Let me make this clear. God is not looking for mere converts. God is not concerned about you just being a mere convert. He's concerned about you and I being disciples, devout followers of Jesus Christ. And that is what our lives ought to reflect and what we need to look like. Therefore, as branches, we need to find our attachment to the vine, right? These are those who are continuously realigning themselves and reorienting their lives to follow Jesus. The branches are. These are those tendrils, tend. Tend rills. So on a vine, you have the vine that produces all the nourishment, all the sap, and the vine, or the branch rather, that produces the cluster of grapes. The branch that produces the cluster of grapes is called the tendrils. That's us, the branches. And we need to be attached to the vine in order to be healthy. Otherwise, we'll begin to be malnourished. What does Jesus mean by seeing what the Father does in verse 2? What, 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 is, what Jesus is saying is that those said branches appear to be attached to the vine, but though they are attached, they are not bearing fruit. They're not bearing any fruit. And because they're not bearing fruit, though they are attached, he cuts them away to remove and or discard. It makes me think of one of the parables in the gospel where Jesus was with the disciples and he was walking, was hungry, went to a fig tree, saw nothing on it, and he cursed it to the ground, expecting fruit. And because there was no fruit where there should have been fruit, he cursed it to the ground. And that afternoon, they walked by and it shriveled up and was gone, right? Why is that? Whereas the branches that are being that are bearing fruit, grooms, prunes, he prunes them so that those said branches can bear much more fruit. There are some who would like to debate or argue that whether or not if this particular passage points to the possibility 
of one being able to lose their salvation if they are in Christ. Right? We'll explore that later on. I want to take my time. I want to, I, want to, I want to pose this question. Those branches that sometimes may look to be, a, it, it may look to be attached to the vine or it may even be attached to the vine, but it's not bearing fruit. What does it look like for you and I? There's some of us that's under the sound of my voice that may be around the things of God. You come to church. You know about the Bible. You can speak Hebrew. You know, you know Greek. You know Aramaic. You know theology. You know systematic uh, uh, theology, anthropology, philosophy. You can do urban apologetics. You can argue left and right. But you are not connected to the vine. You don't have any vibrance connectivity to the Messiah. Is that you and I today? May we comb through our hearts and examine to see where we really are. For example, when you look throughout the gospel, especially John, in John chapter 6, right? I'm going to turn real quick. When Jesus came on the scene, Jesus shook everything up and changed everything. He flipped the whole Old Testament and their expectations and the religious leaders on their heads. Jesus was making bold, provocative, authoritative statements, and he was doing miracles to back up what he was saying, authenticate who he claimed to be. And even there were times when they were ready to kill him because he was making statements that were darn near blasphemous because he was making statements saying that I am, that I am, or before Abraham was, I am. And in their minds, they knew and they understood that he was saying that he was God, right? They're seeing Jesus do all the things that he do. He's raising the dead, healing the sick, giving blind to the vision, vision to the blind, <laughs> hearing to their ears, et cetera, et cetera. And people started following them. People were hungry. He fed 5,000. He fed 5,000 on two different occasions, right? That's just the men. If you included the men, women, and children, multiply that by four, right? But people started following Jesus because he was doing all of these things. Not that they had any relationship or any connectivity to the Messiah. They didn't even believe. They kept asking him, show me a sign. Show me a sign. Let me see what you can do. Are you the Messiah? Are you who you say you are? Let me see what you can do. Do something for me. Tap dance for me. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. Jesus said, y'all ain't following me because of what I say. You're following me because the bread that you ate, your belly is full. Why are you here today? Why do you, why do you come, why, why do you come to a piff? Why do you come to the church? I want everyone in this room to do a survey and examine yourself. Why are you here? Are you here to see the lights, the big screen, to hear the singing, even though that's dope? <laughs> are you here to wax eloquent? Are you here for a mate? Are you here to hook up with somebody? 
You're here to find a husband, find a wife, find... Are you here for a career opportunity? What are you here for? Or are you here because your life depends on the very essence, the very words of what Jesus is articulating from his mouth? There are people who are following Jesus. Jesus was saying some radical things that was just off the hook. There are times even when I read, I'm just like, yo, that's bugging, yo. Like, I... <laughs> Jesus was making statements like, shoot, in, in 6, John, look, John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. No one comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever go thirsty again. As I told you, and you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. See, they didn't believe a thing that he said, but yet they followed him. They kept following him. Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I want you to lick your finger and put your pin right there. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> We're going to come back to that, right? Jesus said, the one who comes to me, Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Fast forward. Jesus started saying things like, the one who eats my flesh, the one who drinks my blood, you will have life, and life eternal. Like, what? Like, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him? Like, that sounds like some more cannibalism, but that's not what he's talking about. To the carnal... That's what you may perceive. But to the spiritual minded, that's, Jesus is saying more than that. Right? When you get a chance, I want you on your own time, please read 60 to 70. There were many people who were following Jesus. And because of these hard sayings, Jesus said, many of his disciples heard this. And they were like, man, this, yo, like, this is hard, dog. Like, man, who can, like, what is this? Like, who can accept it? And Jesus is like, bro, does this offend you? Notice, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus never begged anybody to follow him. <laughs> Jesus begs no one to follow him. When Jesus calls you, you respond. You and I respond, right? But he says, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. There were, there were, there were at least 500 cats following Jesus. The room got cleared out down to about 12 or so, give or take. And Jesus turned around to them and said, would you, you want to leave too? You want, you want to leave too? But Peter was like, Lord, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, this is, this is what Jesus says. Didn't I choose you, the 12? I chose you. Yet and still, one of you. 
one of you is going to betray me. Somebody is still going to betray me and be used of the evil one. Where are you today? I don't want to assume everyone that's under the sound of my voice is attached to the vine or has vibrant connectivity to the vine. But I want you to think and comb through. Examine yourself. Jesus says that you and I are already clean because of the words spoken to you. You're already clean because of the words that I've spoken. Here Jesus is reiterating something that he mentioned repeatedly in John's gospel account. How is one to become clean? If you're not, how does one go about becoming clean? The cleansing power of Jesus' words comes as a result of confidence, faith, hope, clinging, dependence upon, rightly believing, pause, rightly believing, not just having a mental assent. When I say a mental assent, not just believing intellectual facts about a particular thing, about this particular thing that we're discussing, about the personhood of Jesus. God is not concerned about you just having the right information. You can have all the right information and still be disconnected and still be severed from the vine. It's what it is that you do with the information. Oftentimes people live based off of what it is that they know and what they believe. So Jesus says the wise man is the man who hears my word and does them and he obeys them. So by being obedient to God's word and rightly responding to the gospel is how you and I are cleansed. Let it be stated for the record. You are cleansed by the blood of Christ. The death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And believing the one whom the Father has sent. That's what Jesus says. Believe in the one that the Father has sent. You believe me, you believe the Father. You don't believe me, you don't believe the Father. So to believe what Jesus says is to accept the Father. To reject what Jesus is saying you are rejecting the Father. Let it be made clear. I'm going to read this quote. The cleansing power of the word of Jesus has spoken to his disciples is equivalent to the life of the vine pulsating through the branches. Jesus' word, the logos, is not a sign of magical power. What is meant, rather, is that Jesus' is, Jesus is teaching um, in its entirety, including what he is, what he does, he is the Logos incarnate, has already taken hold in the life of those who rightly respond to him. I have one point for you and one only. Only one. In order to be recentered, we must abide in him. In order to be recentered, we must abide in him. To abide, to remain, it means to, it's a verb, it, it, has continue, it has action. To continue in the same state, continue to be as specified, to stay, abide, dwell, or live, and in turn. In the same fashion, the branch is unable to produce fruit, have life, give life, produce fruit in isolation, in solitude, 
and independently apart from the vine, you and I can nor never will be able to produce anything when we're not connected to the vine. It is where our nourishment is obtained. When that happens, this is what tends to take place. A drift begins to occur. Pastor E mentioned it last, you know, uh, uh, you know going through the series, you know, what happens when we drift. When we drift, we end up in, uh, we end up in shriveled places. Malnourished begins to settle in. You begin to dry up on the inside. And you become more flammable. Easily inflamed. It's hard to cut a vine that's, that's ripe and flourishing with sap. Try to cut a branch that is dry and withered. It will cut in a heartbeat. And it's the only thing that it's good for is fuel for the fire. That's judgment talk. Judgment. Right? What are some ways in which you and I find ourselves being malnourished? Our lives, our hearts no longer thump or pulsate the way that it used to in fervor of the vine. What are some of the ways that we try to find life apart from the vine? When we're not attached to the vine, I liken it to, you know, I go to the beach with my family. I don't like the process of having to go to the beach, like loading up the car. I hate that process. When I get to the beach, I'm good. You know what I mean? But loading up the car is for the birds. But I'm an island boy. When I get to the beach, I'm good. I like standing up right on the sand on the seashore where the water washes up underneath my toes. There's nothing like it. Hot blazing sand and nice cold water. But have you ever noticed when you stand on the shore, stationary, not moving, you ain't going anywhere. Your knees is locked, you good. But when the water washes up on your feet and draws back into the vast ocean, you're moving, but you're not moving. You feel like you're moving, but you're not. It's both and. You're stationary, but the sand underneath your feet is being pulled away and being drawn back to the bottom of the ocean. So low key, even though you're stationary, you and I are moving, unknowns to us. So it is with the individual when they are not attached to the vine. That movement is so subtle and it happens in such ways that we don't even realize we don't even notice, right? When we're not attached to the vine, there's a lack of trust in God. We're not confident before God. We're not honest with God. We don't tell the truth. We, we question his love. We question his assurance. We run from community. We move in isolation. We lack commitment unto God and one to another. I don't want to be, I don't want nobody to know anything about me. I want nobody to know my business. I don't want to know anyone. I don't want to know anybody else's business. We run to inadequate means of fulfillment as opposed to being plugged in and abiding in the vine. 
We live below our standards as sons and daughters of the king. We grind and hustle in our own strength and our own selfish desires. And we live like God doesn't exist. Jesus reiterates a strong statement as mentioned earlier at the beginning of his final farewell discourse that he is the vine. He is the vine. We are the branches. When we don't abide, y'all, we do ourselves a great disharm and a great disservice. I'm going to confess that um, there are times I have not always abided. When I don't abide, I'm a horrible person to be around. I'm a grouch. I'm very irritable. I'm not as confident before God. My thoughts wander. I question God's character. We question God's integrity. We second guess his word. We don't know whether we're coming or where we're going. We don't want to, we, we don't have the bandwidth or the ability to persevere as we, as we should. All of this as a result of not abiding. And when I don't abide, the enemy, my mind, my heart becomes the playground for the enemy to assault and to batter. I have no defenses. And because of that, there are times I've questioned or second-guessed whether I should, if I should continue as an elder. If I have felt that way as an elder, I could only imagine and or think how you may possibly feel as the sheep. How do you think and feel when you're not abiding? What do you run to? How do you operate a maneuver? Jesus is greater. Don't give up. He is the greater. We are the lesser. There's a distinction between the two. One sustains, provides, and is the very essence of life. The other draws from the one that sustains in order that it would live. The one who remains, who is deeply plugged in and nurtured their relationship, their connectivity, their intimacy with Christ, and guards it as a matter of life and death, as well as holding fast to his words, believing and rightly responding in obedience and doing what his word is commanding. It is he that the person will be able to bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 90-fold. 200-fold. I think of the parable of the sower when Jesus was with the disciples and he was talking to them about the sower walking among the field and he was throwing seed all over the spot. Some of the seed fell on hard ground, some fell on rocky soil, some fell among thorn and thistles, and some fell on good ground. The first three, hard ground, thorns, thistles, all of that points to the person who has not responded in obedience to Christ. They are not attached to the vine. But the person where the seed has fallen, where there's 30, 60, 70, 90 fold, and they bear fruit, that's evidence 
that that person has connectivity to the vine and life is coursing through their veins, pulsating in their hearts. Because again, the master is all about bearing fruit. And when we're not bearing fruit, God may have to cut, circumcise, cut away, or even burn. This work is not work, this is work that is not done by merely by man's hands or his own strength, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised, Jesus promised that the paraclete was going to come in John 14, 6, John 14, verse 16 through 17, and verse 26. That's why it was imperative for him to ascend into the heavens. Bearing fruit is a byproduct as a result of having deep connectivity and being grounded and anchored in Christ. Are you and I anchored today? Is there something else that's clogging up your ability to absorb nutrients from the vine? Now, what happens to those branches that are not remain, that do not remain or are not connected to the vine? Verse 6 says, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch. He withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire. They are burned. What happens to those branches? Well, liken it to verse 2. These branches are those that have been around the vine. They've been in proximity to the vine. And sometimes they could be engrafted with the vine, but still not bear fruit. Jesus says that you will know a tree by its you will never see a mango tree produce plums you will never see a coconut tree a coconut tree produce apples an apple tree is going to produce apples mangoes mangoes right a good tree produces good fruit bad tree produces bad fruit what kind of fruit do you bear or do you is there any is there any to pluck from if the Messiah or the master wanted to walk by your life and pluck so he can be nourished and find enjoyment just for enjoyment. It's nothing like being, in, being an island boy and just walk, you know, climbing in the backyard, climbing up the tree, pulling a mango and gnawing on that thing just for sheer enjoyment. If the Messiah, if the father wanted to do that with your life, what would he find? What would he find? There are many who have been around the things of God. They've failed to remain in the vine, but they've been thrown out or cast out due to a refusal and failure to embrace and rightly respond to him. We live in a day and an age where so many people who are now once upon a time professing followers of Christ... There's an apostasy that has taken place. And a lot of it has stemmed because they never began by having vital, essential, life-giving connectivity with the Messiah. They never responded in obedience to Jesus. They never believed his words and what he says. The Bible says the day that you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Rightly respond in obedience to him. Many of them have gone astray. 
They were never attached to the vine. Perhaps you may have done all of these things. Some point to not abiding, some not intentionally, recentering one's life around what the Father has provided as a means of grace. God has provided means of grace for us to thrive as followers of Christ. The church, being a part of the church, leadership in the church, membership at the church, reading the word of God, hearing the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, the Eucharist, communion, etc. All of these things, yet we abstain from them. We refrain from them. We don't believe we're, we're subjective and have relative ideas about what it is that Jesus has absolutely said in his word. If that's you, you are not attached to the vine and you're not abiding. Or perhaps you decided to walk away from the faith altogether. Or maybe you knew someone that walked away from the faith. They were never abiding to begin with. They never had vibrant relationship with Jesus. Verse 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. When we submit and surrender to following Jesus and walk in obedience to him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they decide, they reorganize, they rearrange, they realign and recenter our lives so that the Father is most glorified and most honored. God is honored when our lives are centered on the centrality of Christ and when we abide in him. How is this done? By being obedient. Obedience, holding fast to his word. Our prayer life is the place in which intimacy with Jesus and the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit is most nurtured. It is there where our hearts yield and surrender to, is surrendered to him and our prayers begin to be in according to what his will is, not ours, but his. This invokes Jesus' presence to be filled in our hearts, and we experience fullness of joy. When we allow the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, to realign our lives, I liken it to this. I know most of y'all have cars in here. There are times from time to time you have to take your car to get service. You may need to get a realignment. If you don't have a realignment, you know, you know you need a realignment if you're driving, you take your hand off the wheel, and the car shifts to the left real sharp, or it shifts to the right, or, you know, just some, there's something crazy. Sometimes what you need to do when you take your car, you may need to get your tires rotated. When you're not centered, when you're not connected, what happens is with your car... Your alignment is off. You go to the left or the right. Your tire pressure, be your tire begins to get affected. 
your low, the, the, the tire pressure in your tires becomes impacted, which, af which affects the fuel efficiency in your vehicle, which also affects your ability to drive the way your car operating, the way it has to work a lot harder than it's supposed to, right? Sometimes when you go, you have to take it and they have to take the wheels and they have to align them. Whenever you get a chance, look at your rims, right? You might see these little, like, either, like these little chiclets. They look like chiclets, right? But they're weights in the back of the rim. They help your tires to become balanced. When they're balanced and they do all of the alignment, when you're driving, you can drive your car, take your hand off the wheel, and your car would go straight. Sometimes when you hit potholes, speed bumps, hitting the curb time and time again, don't know how to parallel park. Some of y'all don't know how to park. You know what I'm saying? Some of y'all may not know how to drive. Um, but when, when you do all of those things, hitting the curb, hitting potholes, all those things can cause your car to be off of alignment. That's why we need God to help us because sometimes the cares of the world, the cares of this life, the same parable about the sower and the seed, the thorns, the, 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 the rocky soil, the thorns will strangle and choke whatever it is that you and I have heard. Things that you and I do normally, naturally, just to be able to live. You're tired, sleepless. I have six kids. I work 60, sometimes 50 hours a week. Those things can, you know, just naturally affect my alignment and my ability to have deep connectivity with the Lord. And when those things go unchecked, you can easily begin to drift. All of us can. So what are the benefits about abiding? First, the greatest of all is love. God's love overwhelms us and overwhelms our hearts. The love that Jesus had the Father, the love that Jesus had with the Father, he loves us in the same manner. And when we abide and dwell and walk in obedience to his word, his commands, what he taught and said, we actually reside and remain in his love. We take up residence in his love. The Bible says in 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. You have perfect love. If you love someone, it's nothing that you're willing to die for them. You're not even thinking. If I, I, my wife and my kids, something happened to my wife and kids, I'm willing to put my life on the line with no rap. I'm not even going to think about it. But when we lack abiding in Jesus, we don't have that measure of gumph or confidence before God. The next second benefit is joy, never-ending, unexplainable joy. The joy of the Lord becomes our strength. The joy that Jesus had and experienced with the Father due to their relationship and their intimacy. We experience joy. The joy that the Father had with the son, the son had with the father, that we, we begin to enter into that space and that becomes our own. And finally, when we pray, like one of the benefits of abiding, not just joy, not just love, but a rich and a robust prayer life. God says that he will pretty much ask whatever you want, give us a blank check and he will answer it. What does that really mean? Now, there's some people out here that would like to have you think 
something left side of the field. What God is saying, what Jesus is actually saying is ask whatever it is according to my will. Because prayer never changes God's heart. It changes ours. It helps us to be realigned with the master, with his will. Where Jesus is like, Father, not my will be done, let your will be done. And when we begin to pray and we begin to experience that deep intimacy and connectivity with Jesus, our hearts and our minds begin to change. We begin to pray the things that God wants. The things that God wants, I begin to want. And when I want the thing that God wants, God is quick and ready to answer those prayers, right? Due to that, we experience, we're able to experience great intimacy, great intimacy with Jesus and our lives are more conformed and abiding with Christ. And therefore, Jesus the Father is glorified and honored. Jesus is honored. Jesus is honored. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Oftentimes, we don't feel the joy of the Lord in our life because we haven't been abiding. And when we're not abiding, we don't feel complete. We don't feel wholesome. And therefore, we run to other things to find fulfillment or satisfaction. I'm landing to the, I'm, I'm, I'm landing the plane. Where are you? Where are you today? In regards of abiding, have you been abiding? When we don't abide, we do ourselves a great disservice and it impacts others. When we don't abide, Jesus is not glorified. Jesus says, this is one of the ways that you would know that you are my disciples, your love for one another. When we're lacking love, we're not abiding. We're not abiding. Let us have a heart posture of humility and repentance and cry out to God where we need to repent so that we can abide and that we can have deep connectivity and vibrant relationship with Jesus. Having our lives recentered. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual emphasis.